Well, I, I want to share some good news with you. I just got a text from a, from a, a friend who is... Do uh, you have this on? Is this on? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, in uh, Indiana, and we were there uh, in April. I did a men's retreat there. And uh, this Methodist church is really going through all of what the United Methodist Church is going through. I mean, the LGBTQ agenda is really hitting denominations. And um, he just said, I need to stay true to the Bible, even if I lose 24 years of pension and all the rest of that. I have to stay true to what the scriptures say. And he said, and I pray that that would happen for our church as well. And uh, so they had the final vote tonight as to whether or not they're going to go with the globalist Methodist Church or stay with the United Methodist Church that seems to be embracing uh, that sexual movement. And he just said uh, they have voted to join the globalist 114 to 4. So uh, we need to pray for those four. But anyway, I'm really rejoicing. Uh, they had uh, looking to lay down God's standard, and I'm just I'm thrilled for them because I've been praying with this pastor a number of times, and he's called me and texted me. And uh, anyway, I just got that news right there. So that's uh, terrific news. I'm very very happy to hear that. All right, I see that Janet took my opening phrase away by having us quote that passage. They might quote it better with you than they did with me. All right, well then let's try it again. Now, now some of you, I saw you going, and then looking at me or looking at her. Ready? Here we go. Bless it all. <laughs> She's looking to jump to verse 6 right away. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain... And when he was seated, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Praise the Lord. I want to pray, and I want to pray especially, I was uh, kind of burdened a little bit in our prayer time beforehand that there are, some of you have really already had a rough week from Sunday and Monday and today's Tuesday, and it's been hard. And I, I want to just really pray for an added measure of grace tonight to be able to lift and to cast all that burden on the Lord so that there can be a freedom this evening to just sit at Jesus' feet and to hear from him tonight, even through the imperfections of this human vessel. So, Lord, I want to pray for brothers and sisters here tonight that are really going through a difficult time. God, it just it happens. That, that's part of life. So I just pray that, Lord, there'd be a a full giving and surrender of that hard time, this trial of their faith, 
Right now you're watching to see if they will continue to have faith in and faithfulness to God in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this heavy load. So you're the lifter of our burdens. You're the lifter of our head. You're the strengthener when we feel weak. And Lord, I pray you do that for every one of us that is feeling heavy, overburdened, heavy laden. Tonight we get yoked to Jesus. We take your yoke upon us, Lord, so that we can learn of you. You're meek and you're humble of heart. And the more that we actually learn of you, we find rest for our souls. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we choose. So Lord, be honored tonight. Be blessed tonight. I pray that your name, your nature, your character, your person, all that you are could be released into our gathering tonight. That we could be drawn a little closer again to the place that you have eternally destined for each of us to stand in and walk in in this season of our life. So Lord, I blow the shofar as we're at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. Rejoicing that uh, our dwelling on this earth is so temporary. So Lord, we celebrate that we know our eternal inheritance is with you and you alone and all the saints in glory. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to your sons and daughters in these days. God, we're so grateful. Amen. It's just so interesting that natural hunger and spiritual hunger are totally opposite from each other. <coughs> They're totally opposite. I mean, when we go without food or eating for a good while, what happens? Man, our hunger increases greatly. But, and even we can even become obsessed with food when we're not eating it. I mean, we think about food all the time. We think about it most of the time throughout the day anyway. But when we're fasting, my goodness, and our smells are heightened. Our taste buds are heightened. Everything is heightened because we're longing for food. But when we go a long time without eating spiritual food, without spending time in the Word, without spending time in prayer, without wonderful, rich fellowship, when we're with others and sharing the Lord, sharing the Word, praying together, our hunger and our thirst for the things of God greatly decreases. Natural hunger increases Spiritual hunger decreases with absence. But I want you to listen to the heart of King David in Psalm 63. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Listen to the heart cry of this man, as it says in Acts 13, who was after God's heart, who would do all God's will. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Oh, how I praise you. Friends, this is spiritual hunger and thirst for God. My, my flesh longs for you. I mean, this is passionate love for God. When we're hungry for God, we're desperate for Him, not just for what He can do for us, but we're just hungry for Him. Not what He can do, just Him. Him and Him, Him, Him alone. But if we lose our hunger for the Lord, we will lose our hunger and thirst for righteousness too. Righteousness is the rightness of God in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body, in your home, in your relationships in your classroom, in your business. It's a walk of holiness, and it means being set apart from this world and its conduct and its conversation. Jesus gave us examples of righteousness. We'll study this in some weeks ahead, looking further ahead in Matthew chapter 5, especially to verses 38 through 48, in 10 verses, I'm just going to highlight a few of the phrases. But here are some of the challenges toward righteousness that Jesus brings out in these 10 verses. He says, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If they command you to walk a mile with them, go a second mile. Give to everyone who asks of you and lend to those who want to borrow from you. Here's an easy one. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. And do good to those who hate you. This challenge is to very radical living. Amen? Our old nature doesn't want to do any of this. It doesn't want to love our enemies. It doesn't want to do good to those that hate us. It doesn't want to bless those who are cursing. It doesn't want to give more than what they're asking for. Our old nature doesn't want to do any of this. And this is really hard stuff. The righteousness of God is going to require something dying. But it's the right living according to God's standard. That's why Jesus lifted the standard up. And it's the righteousness of God on display through a human surrender to God's will and not our own, which is a constant battle. I want you to turn to John chapter 12, if you would. Very interesting situation that happened in the life of Jesus. John 12. I want to start in verse 20 and probably go through 26. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir... 
we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. All right, let's look at this story. There were some Jews that came from Greece that come up to Philip. And they said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. I mean, they came from Greece. You know, I see immediately people are always searching for God whether or not they're aware of it. But the first thing that they wanted to do in coming to the feast, celebrating in Jerusalem, they want to hear and see this Jesus. The truth is, everyone needs his forgiveness whether or not they want it. They all need his forgiveness. Without his forgiveness, we're eternally doomed. We need his love. Every human needs his rule in our lives. And even when they're totally unaware of it, there's still, it's the greatest need that humanity has. So Philip told Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus, and they tell him, but Jesus had an unusual response. Here they say, Lord, there's some people over here who want to see you. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wow. Can you imagine Philip and Andrew? What does that have to do with these guys over here that are wanting to see you? Then he taught them the principle that there must be first death in order for life to come. But why did Jesus talk about death and life when they simply just said, oh, there's some, some men here who wish to see you. Jesus often gave spiritual principles rather than direct answers to questions. His focus was on an eternal realm. Sometimes he would answer a natural question, but often he would end up giving a spiritual principle instead of giving the answer. What a unique philosophy in life. You know, to paraphrase Jesus' words, I think it would go something like this. My death and glorification are at hand, and this is the only way that life can come to others. And the same is true for everyone. Those who cling to their own lives will lose true life. And those who give up their lives for the sake of others will gain abundant life. But then his next words implied this, Philip and Andrew. Not only is it my time to die, it is also your time to die to yourself so that you can transmit my life to others. When people come to you, Andrew, 
Philip, when people come to you in the future and they want to see me, let them see me in you. Jesus is saying these same words to us today. People are all around us every day, and you know, all of them, they need to see Jesus. Whether they want to or not, that's the ultimate eternal need for all of humanity. And we are the only ones responsible to show him Jesus. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's got a great statement here. And puts our perspective in light of our witness and our showing Jesus to others. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse uh, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us but life in you. I think a simple definition of death to self is embracing that which is uncomfortable, which goes right against our nature, but primarily for the reason that Jesus might be seen and glorified in me, that I deny myself and prefer some, someone else. And that not only can his life be seen, but it can be released through us to a greater extent. In this beatitude, Jesus is calling us to be righteous so that others might see him in us. It's the righteousness of God in us. And they'd be drawn to him because of the Jesus in us that they see. Either that or they would hate us. We should have the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had. If you, he said, if you want to see the Lord, look at me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my life, 1 Corinthians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And let's don't be like Philip, who probably went back to Andrew after the Lord gave him this message about dying to self and eternal life and all that. He probably went to Andrew and said, hey, they want to see Jesus, now what do we do? Jesus went about some other thing rather than going and answering the question and meeting the the Jewish Greeks. I want us to see how this beatitude correlates to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, we look to blend the beatitudes with the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And Thyatira fits this description and obviously that they lacked hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay, starting in verse 18, Revelation 2. 
and to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So Jesus is commending the church in Thyatira for their faith, for their endurance, and for their good works. But then he ends up rebuking them for their tolerating of the woman who led the Lord's bondservants astray so that they committed sexual immorality similar to how what we looked at last week a little bit with Balaam. Once Israel yielded to sexual immorality, their power left. When the Lord's bondservants yield to sexual immorality, the hunger and thirst for righteousness wanes. Sexual immorality and idolatry were overcoming the righteousness in the church in Theatera. The believers were losing their power of their witness all to the community of that city because of their compromising lifestyles. Righteousness and immorality cannot coexist because of their radical contradictions. To think righteously of someone is to think of them the way that God does. Immorality looks at a human being made in God's image and yet regards him or her as something to be used or exploited for personal gain or gratification. To have immoral thoughts about people, you know what it really is? It's to look and to think about people the same way Satan does. He sees them as objects of gratification. Personal gain, if he can have inroads into the life. We need to think of every person the way that we would want other people to think about our family members. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now in context, this verse says that God's people must first be holy. Because if they're not, no one in this world will see God. We are to reflect God in His holiness and in His righteousness. We're called to reveal God to this world, this lost and dying world, we who are saved, we who are the Lord's chosen. I like what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, verse 23. You don't need to turn there, I'll just read it to you. The nations will know and understand and realize that I am the Lord when I shall be set apart by you and my holiness vindicated 
in you before their eyes. Wow. What a powerful statement. Paul said, I'll do whatever I have to do to minister the gospel. I become all things to all men that I might win some. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Friends, we've got to have this attitude. We should be praying, Lord, please let me show Jesus to some other people. Lord, I'll visit the sick. I'll go to the nursing home. I'll help the needy. I'll carry out the trash. I'll do the dishes. I'll be available. Lord, I'll even go a second mile. Wow, I'll tell you, I have to fess up here. Too often I find myself looking how I can get out of the first mile. Let alone rarely even thinking about the second mile. How can I get out of this first? Titus 3.14 says, Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. I love how the emphasis at Highland is so much on serving. Jesus described himself, I think it's in Matthew 11, I am meek and humble of heart. I am humble. I am meek. I am a servant. I've come not to be served, but to serve. Jesus described himself in vain, basically two veins. I've come in humility and I've come in servanthood. We need to be obvious and to be willing to help meet the needs of others, even if it's going to cost us. We need to be responsible in showing the life of Jesus to other people that need to see his life on display. So how do we get his, his righteousness? This is an incredibly simple answer. We get his righteousness by simply spending more time alone with the all-righteous one. In your home and throughout your whole day. You don't just meet with the Lord for a five-minute scripture reading in the morning or a 60-second prayer of thanks before you eat. He's woven throughout your day. Your th idle thoughts can easily go toward the Lord rather than toward you or your needs. You see, the more our thoughts get toward the Lord, he'll start to show us other people that need to see him as well. And sometimes our servanthood, our prayer for them, our intercession, our standing in the gap can make an eternal difference of where they are to where God wants them to be. Our time in his word, our time in prayer are vital in the developing process of hungering and thirsting after righteousness and having the righteousness of God be filled in us. If someone is mistreating us, here's a classic example. This happens all the time. Someone says something or does something that upsets us. Immediately, that's time to go to God. Not go to our friends, not go to someone else and tell them about what happened. We go to God. So that we can gain the strength and gain the forgiveness to start doing the right process of right living according to God's standard. Lord, I forgive that person. Uh, I, I want to forgive right now while it's still fresh. I don't want to soak in this. It starts to turn really sour the more I think about it. So I want to, I want to extend forgiveness. And even though they're not here, it's just me and you. I extend forgiveness 
And not only forgiveness, I want to bless them. I want to bless them. I heard that as a curse. I extend a blessing in return. And that can happen throughout the day. It's in prayer where we align ourselves with God's heart and will. It says of Jesus, he often slipped away to a lonely place. That means throughout the day, it wasn't just in the morning. You take a little break from, from the brothers. Yeah, I need to go over here for a little bit. Okay, be over there 15, 20 minutes talking out to the father all the hurts and all the disappointment he had by hearing the brothers talk. How they want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Oh my goodness, they're missing it. He talked to the Father about everything. That's why his intimacy with the Father was so passionate. Everything I hear the Father say, I do. Wow. May we get closer to that as a reality in our lives. Friends, we do become one with the Lord when we do intercede. We reach the place of saying, Lord... Use me. Lord, send me. Isaiah was in such a place of intimacy in Isaiah 6. He was so heartbroken because his best friend, or one of his really good friends, King Uzziah, died. And in the midst of that heartache, heart wrench, all of a sudden the heavens opened. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And in experiencing God's presence to that measure. Woe is me! Oily ki nidmedi in Hebrew. God, I'm undone. I'm unraveled at the seams. But he enjoyed that richness of God's fellowship and intercession and intimacy with God is how we get his righteousness. In the midst of that intimacy, he'll start burdening us with what burdens him. He'll start giving us burden for people that we maybe haven't prayed for. And he'll start to give us a desire to want to reveal him to the ones who have yet to know him, no matter what it costs us. We hunger and thirst to see others be treated just like Jesus is treating us. He's blessed us so mightily. He's honored us so wonderfully. He's treated us with mercy, with grace, with all kinds of goodness. Let's pray. Lord, we're just a thankful people tonight. Your goodness is beyond. It's beyond description. God, the beautiful homes that you've provided for us, whether it's a 40-foot square room or a wonderful house. Lord, we have running water. God, we have toilets inside of our house. Oh, God. We have luxuries. We have vehicles. God, you have blessed us so mightily, Lord. You have poured out your blessing to us. And you've poured out the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, we ask that you would give us fresh hunger tonight. You'd give us a fresh thirst tonight. 
And Lord, some of us, maybe we've been away from spiritual food. And our hunger is decreased. That happens in the spiritual realm. But Lord, I pray you'd stir up. Stir up. The little is still there. Blow your wind on the coals of our heart. May fresh fire start to burn within us for our God. Lord, I pray that all of us would grow in our hunger and thirst after right, righteousness. You promised, you promised, you promised us, Jesus, that if we really do hunger for right living according to your standards, we would be filled. We would get what we ask for because we're asking a right. Grant that, Father, I pray, for the glory of God expressed in the life of Jesus. Amen.